Do you want to hear what it is? Yeah, love to hear that. Each you guys, and this isn't for the show, right? Mm-hmm. We're not doing the show yet. So if you guys are ready. I got my red marker. Oh. <laughs> Uh, you know, we've been sort of rolling into the show these days, but I realize that uh, it, every once in a while it's probably good to remind people who we are. Um, this is the Vegas Gang Podcast, and uh, I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Dave Schwartz, who is uh, the director of the Center for Gaming Research at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Hi, Dave. Hi there. And of course, the school truant, Charles S. Munster Esquire. We don't know what he does. We don't know where he lives. We don't know where he is, but we need him with us at all times. I am here. And as I mentioned to Hunter before we started that uh, I did not do my homework this week. So <laughs> I bet Chuck that he could ignore the news for 100 days. And he said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> um, real quickly before we talk about uh, some goings on, um, a reminder Vimp 2014. So uh, that's going to be coming up in October of this year. Um, now, that may seem like a ways away, but believe me, it's going to be on us soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not yet announced our hotel partner for the event. That will, announcement will be coming soon. We are uh, still nailing down everything we need to nail down, but um, don't worry. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we are planning on try- – we're trying to top last year's event, which was – if you were there, you know – uh, fun was had by all, so that will be difficult to do. But we're we're gonna try. We're uh, we're revving our engines, and we're not ready to talk about it in the details yet. But uh, I can tell you, people of Earth, that I am excited. <laughs> I am excited. I'm also a little bit um, a little bit stressed out, only because I look at my to do list and it is long oh, and not boy. moving quickly enough. Yeah. But um, it's for a good cause, so I am energized by that aspect of it this is the hard part for us at least you know like yes. this first planning and organizing and get everything kind of together and then when the show comes it's it's usually not so difficult but yeah i mean it's, it's by that point it's pretty much the stage is set and it's like you just yep. hit the gas pedal and it yep. either works or it doesn't and there's not much you can do to fix it at that point anyway yeah so um it's gonna be great can't wait to share all of these details with everybody Mm-hmm. Um, the, the dates are firm. So wh- even though we have not yet announced the, uh, the hotel partner, um, you know, you can, if you got a book airfare, you should feel confident doing that. So we've, uh, yeah. we, we want to make sure we let, we let you know, and we know that, uh, the more advanced notice we give you, the better. So, um, we are aware, do not, uh, do not worry. We're on top of it. So, mm-hmm. we will have more for you as soon as we have more for you. <laughs> yes. How's that for specificity? That's great. But in the meantime, I think there's another event even before that, isn't there? Yeah, there absolutely is. VT <laughs> Dio. Uh, <laughs> VT Uno Un Do Okay. Um, Chuck, tell us about VT ten. Yes, VT ten or VTX. I should have done that. VT ten this uh, May third. Uh, marks the 10th anniversary of the date that uh, we bought the VegasTripping.com domain name. Oh, so that was the day that, that it went from being a, a glint to being a, a reality. And you know, we just want to have a small little 
birthday party, I guess, to uh, to commemorate the occasion. And uh, Saturday, May third, two thousand fourteen, we're gonna get together and have some drinks and uh, whatever other shenanigans occur at the bar inside the Golden Gate Hotel and Casino downtown Las Vegas. Saturday night, probably around seven, we're gonna start gathering and. You know, we'll see what happened. There might be some other stuff that might happen the night before. Who knows? There's no schedule to this. There's no events to this other than, you know, just getting the community and the people and the friends and, you know, all the great people who uh, who we all interact with on the Internet together in person once again to have a great time. It's a great crew, and we're excited to, to celebrate 10 years. Awesome. Well, f- congrats. Um, I'll be there. Thanks. Can't wait. Should be awesome. I'll be there too. Uh, so, uh, ten years is that the anniversary of the the infamous like uh, Carson Street Cafe sit down, or is that was that a different place well, in the, the timeline? The Carson Street Cafe thing happened probably about uh, maybe four or five days before then. Gotcha. So, you know, I guess I'll quickly go through what you're talking about. Is uh, my wife and I were gambling at the Plaza, we we're playing blackjack, and we both got really drunk. And the dealer, they called in a total cooler of a dealer. We were up on a lot of money, and he came and took it all back. So we decided it's time to get out of here. We went over to the Carson Street Cafe at the Golden Nugget, which has since closed. Uh, and we just started talking about the germination of an idea for making a website that had no BS on the Internet. It was, no, it was not ruled by uh, apologists or PR people or... Uh, straight from the horse's mouth content. We wanted to basically do our own thing and tell the truth as we saw it and uh, put it on the internet and create a community around it. And just through the magic of whatever, luck and hard work, it, it kind of worked. So, Very excellent. Yes, the Carson Street Cafe is recently closed, replaced with a claim jumper restaurant. Um, Ouch. Is there a memorial <laughs> Vegas stripping table at the claim jumper we can put a plaque on? Oh, shit. You know, we should. Make a Facebook. Uh, we should, just like the John Hall mm-hmm. Memorial Trash Receptacle or whatever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he, for those who don't know, he barfed on the carpet right next to it. So so we should, we should definitely, uh, we should definitely mark, <laughs> mark that in the interwebs for, uh, for the yeah. future. That's a good idea. Um, all right. So, yeah. Uh, VT10 coming up in May. Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic coming up in October. Um, more to come on all fronts. So we've got some stuff to talk about here. Um, I think we'll lead off with, uh, with Jackie gone who, um, you know, a legendary Las Vegas operator that, uh, recently passed away at 93, um, or Jackie Goggin, as Steve Wynn referred to him in the, uh, (laughs) memorial address, which is pretty, pretty funny. Um, he had at the funeral, they had, you know, folks like, um, Senator Harry Reid and, Steve Wynn and, and others giving eulogies, and Steve was reflecting on um, his experience when he was at Golden Nugget, and Jackie was an investor. And he said, uh, yeah, we had customers coming in. They say, we're good. We're close personal friends of Mr. Goggin. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was just like, okay, yes, you know him so well, you can't even pronounce his name correctly. Um Anyway, this guy, uh, I think anybody that listens to this show is, has got to know the name, at least, if not all of the details, because uh, not only um, does he have a, a pretty amazing past and 
was a significant chunk of Las Vegas history, but uh, you know his family continues on, right? His son was also is also involved um, in places like Barbary Coast and the Gold Coast and New Orleans, and he's now still at South Point uh, doing stuff. But yeah, I mean, according to I had to pull this out because you know, I think most people. Um, most closely identified Jackie Gunn with the El Cortez, which, of course, uh, was where he lived for uh, the past decades, I think. I don't know exactly how long. But, of course, he he's one of these guys that has been around forever and had a piece of pretty much every Fremont Street casino. Um, according to this list, or not even just Fremont Street, but just the downtown especially, but also on the Strip. I mean, it's got uh, Gold, Gold Spike, Las Vegas Club, the Western... Uh, investments in the Flamingo, the Nugget, Pioneer Club, Boulder Club, um, and of course the the El Cortez and stuff like the Plaza. I mean, this is this list is not even complete. I can tell, but I mean, it's crazy. Uh, the guy um, had his hand in in all of those things and was a major force in helping to shape the downtown that we know today. And um, you know, of course, was notable for being very visible on property. I mean, he hadn't uh, actually owned the El Cortez for quite a while. But um, he, uh, you know, was living there and would play poker and hang out. I mean, obviously, as he got older, it was less common to see him around. But um, very, very, uh, very visible and approachable. And in the days after his his death, of course, we've heard from many, many folks, but also from his employees, a lot of his former employees, uh, talking about what a great guy he was to work for. Um, really a lot of love for this guy, I think, in the community. Uh, Dave, is that is that accurate? I mean, you know, I'm sure you could uh, tell us his his complete life story um, <laughs> as the historian in you, but and it is very important. But, I mean, what's, what's your yeah. take on this? What's his lasting contribution going to be? Just a very beloved figure, you know, guy who really did things the right way. And his motto always was, you know, if it's good for you and it's good for me, it's good. If it's If it's not good for you, it's not good for me. So just a guy, I think, who did more than just run a casino well. He really uh, showed us how to act with integrity and honesty. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that we can remember about Jackie. You know, it's not just running the casino. Like I think I I said in my piece in 7, you know, somebody else would have brought in the coupon book. Somebody else would have figured out, hey, we'll give away chocolates on Tuesday when nobody's here. But really he was a guy who showed – probably two or three generations of casino people, this is how you're supposed to do it. And, you know, I hope a lot of them try to live up to that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I think that was also interesting is just this, in some ways, it reminded me, all of his investments reminded me of, um, you know, just the fact that that was more common in the old, where you, a single um, casino entrepreneur might have a little piece of a bunch of different places. Um, and maybe there's a place that they really focused their time and energy and resources on, but it wasn't uncommon to, you know, have a, have a little slice of this joint and a little slice of that joint and, um, create a little mini, uh, non-controlling empire. We don't, we we don't really see that anymore. Yeah. We don't see as much of that. You do have, and I think kind of the, the closest thing you might have is Derek Stevens with an investment in the Riviera Mm -hmm. is kind of the closest to that. And I think in in some ways, Derek is a little bit of a throwback to Jackie. The fact that he's actually at his property, walking around and invisible and is visible, it's something you don't see a lot of other places. So that's pretty good. 
So yeah. I think we need to see more of that. And I think we are seeing more of that. You know, definitely the Epstein's at the Alcortaz are very vis- visible and Mike Nolan too. So I think they've really got it. It's, it's up to everybody else to get it and just to get out there. I wonder what, and I'm sure that, you know, others have wondered this as well. Well, what sort of Jackie thought about where what was happening with downtown recently? Especially, I, I would guess it's probably somewhat of a mixed mixed bag if you're going to look at that, right? I mean, the, there's obviously a lot of interest in downtown now. There's many people have written and talked about sort of a resurgent downtown and and some interesting fun stuff going on. At the same time, some of the properties that he um, was instrumental in shepherding. Uh, some of them are doing better than others. I mean, most notably the Las Vegas Club is, uh, we've talked about it on this show, it's <laughs> not in a great spot. Um, and I wonder if something like that would make him sad. Um, but maybe and how that would be balanced against uh, all the great stuff that's happening downtown. I think he I think he was very happy with what was going on at the El Cortez. You know, Kenny Epstein, I think, partnered with him in 1974, so they'd worked together for a really long time before the Epsteins bought a controlling share in 2008. So I think he was really happy with how that was going. And I think it's, it gave him a chance to see that, Hey, his vision for Las Vegas is going to continue in the future. And it's, you know, more people are going to do this and, and people really did get it. Yeah. Um, you know, this is just a reminder that, uh, that sort of first generation of, uh, you know, Nevada casino pioneers are, are starting to are starting to disappear um, completely, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of them pass over the last couple decades. People like, uh, you know, Binion has been long gone, um, but obviously a contemporary of his. I mean, there's not that many of these guys left, right? Some of their direct underlings are even, you know, Steve Wayne. Steve Wayne is what seventy and change, right? So seventy two. Yeah, so I mean, it's um, we're uh, we're really this is really a milestone. I think it is. I think it is, and I think you have to look at where the next generation of leadership is coming from. You've got some in some places; it's sort of a family affair. Uh, definitely see that at the El Cortez. Also see that in a very different way at Downtown Grand. In other ways, it's new people coming in, like Derek and uh, other folks like that. So I think there's going to be the leadership downtown. It's just where are they going to have their ideas of how to run a casino? And I think they really need to look at Jackie gone. Uh, Cause he really, I think gave him a great, great uh, book to follow there. Yeah. Chuck, you know, you've asked a question um, of several of our interview guests, a question that often confounds them. Yeah. <laughs> um, this question, I think you probably know what I'm about to say. Uh, you've asked this question and I'm going to paraphrase you. Um, you know, Please. if you were, if you were my dad, and I'm speaking as you now, I think your dad's what in his 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, why should I come to your property? This is a question that I remember you in, uh, re- notably asking um, the uh, general gentleman, Mr. Gordon Absher from uh, MGM Resorts, in the run up to City Center, and, and I, I, you know, I, I would say that his answer was a little formulaic, um, and maybe didn't quite hit the essence of the question. So, um, and you've asked some other folks since with sometimes better success than others. What do you think that Jackie would say to that? And do you think that this is the kind of place that your dad would want to play? Uh, I think so for sure. He would have answered the question perfectly by saying, because you'll have a great time and you'll have a great value and you'll be treated well and we won't pick your pocket. You know, uh, I think about the, uh, you know, whenever I hear 
Jackie's name, I think of the hamburger <laughs> at, at the at the cafe at the El Cortez, <laughs> and I think it was. Pro- I wrote a review of it, and I think it was probably one of the most one of the best things I've, I may have ever written. But the burger deserved it. It was that good. It it was simple. It was a simply cooked hamburger with you know a piece of cheese on it, some fresh lettuce. Fresh uh, tomato, some good crunchy pickles, and skin on shoestring fries, and a night puffy sesame seed bun. And I devoured that thing and loved every single moment of it. And to me, it was it was really the uh, uh, the El Cortez in essence. It's like no frills, no nothing, but man, it tastes good. It's really delicious. And I remember sitting at the at the table next to mine was this this drunk guy he might have been uh homeless or something but he uh started speaking out loud to anybody who would hear and he said i think i have this written down here but he uh, he he made this this poem he said this poem out loud he said i have dined with dignitaries and politicians popes and saints pharaohs and kings and this is the best meal i've ever had Oh, wow, <laughs> this is this is a normal guy, you know. Who knows what his state of being is, but he was definitely drunk, and he had definitely just finished a, a meal at the El Cortez, and that, you know, I think speaks volumes in in the larger sense of what people think about Jackie and his places. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's. Um at at 93 i guess it's hard to say that it's a surprise when uh, when someone um when someone dies at that age but at the same time it's it's clearly um very sad right i mean this is a guy that had a huge impact was widely loved um we need more people like him not less yeah uh, you know Absolutely. one of the things that always struck me and about just the the family and i think speaks to a lot of the way um that they have all conducted themselves. Uh, after um, Michael Gaughan sold off the Barbary Coast and the Gold Coast and the Orleans um, to Boyd Gaming, you know, I, originally it was clear that he was going to, the plan was for him to work there and sort of shepherd that part of the company. And it was clear pretty quickly that he just didn't like working in a big company. He wanted to have that contact with the customers directly. And so he negotiated that deal where he you know, converted the South Coast to South Point and uh, spun it off and is now the master of his own domain there. Uh, but I just always thought that that was really a notable aspect of sort of the way that these guys do things. Um, it always really stuck with me. Yeah. Some people really need the personal touch. Yeah. That's it. They like to give their customers the personal touch and they need the personal touch to operate their properties. You know, the polar opposite is... You know, a guy like Jimbo Murren, who spends most of his time doing what he's supposed to do, which is keep them from going under. He's not really an operator in that sense. He's a banker. You know, and they need more of the people who are the operator who have a little bit of the sense of both. They're part Steve Wynn and part Mad Maddox. They need to have both of these guys who go out and touch people and go out and check things out and see what's going on. Otherwise, it's too easy to lose sight of what the focus is in your business, particularly in the hospitality industry. Right. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything else that uh, anybody wants to say about about Jackie Gone before we move on, but um, definitely wanted to spend some time 
to talk about him on the show because he's such an important, not the kind of guy that would that that came up in a ton of past episodes. I mean, of course, we've talked about mm-hmm. it here and there, but um, a great example of somebody that was just hugely influential uh, and a huge part of all of the stuff that we know as um, know of as modern Las Vegas. Yeah. For me, it was really great to go to the service and just see everybody turn out to support him. And we had the Senate Majority Leader of the United States, former governors, obviously a lot of people from the casino business there. And it's just really reflects on his greatness as a human being. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I noticed? And I was watching video coverage from the local mm-hmm. stations. Ken Wynn was there. You remember Ken Wynn? Oh, yeah. Wor- used to work for Steve Wynn's brother, of course. Used to work mm-hmm. for Mirage Resorts, and then mysteriously vanished after some sketchy-sounding FBI looking into his background about certain things. I don't know where that ever ended up. Um, whether he was—I assume he was exonerated because he's not in jail. But I—I um, I had forgotten he existed. He used to head uh, <laughs> Atlantia, which was like their win and design and development company at Mirage. So. Uh, He's been long gone, but yes, he was on Fox 5 News. He looks really, it's, I haven't seen him in ages. He is the spitting image of his brother, just, you know, 10 years younger or whatever. Um, did I tell you guys that somebody stole the hood ornament off my car? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> what a terrible thing. I shit you not. It is, was unbelievable. Uh, sorry, non sequitur. Did they put it on top of MGM Resorts? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know why they take these things. I think it's uh, they just are mean spirited jerks. But I, you know, everybody needs a hood ornament, and now I don't have one. Um, all right, moving on. Moving down the street, we are going to do a drive. We're going to be very Las Vegas centric, I think, today. Um, Dave, I would like to talk to you about service, luxury, and style. Yes. Uh, SLS, Las Vegas, the hotel that we probably said on this show we would never open and that we would eat dirt if it did, is going (laughs) to open, and I have the dirt ready. Um, So it's going to open in the fall, and my understanding is that you got uh, a little bit of a hands-on look. I don't really know anything about what happened, so I'm learning here for the first time. For the record, I said I would eat an umami burger if it opened. Ah, see, you were smarter than we were. I'm pretty sure I said I would like... I never said dirt. I never said dirt. Maybe umami burger. Ah, so got a, a walkthrough with Rob Osseland and a couple of other folks, and it was fascinating to see the property at this stage of development where basically you can see how they totally ripped down the Sahara, the podium there, you know, just totally blew that thing out. And there's a ton of new construction and it doesn't look anything like a casino right now. Right. It is just, you know... Construction everywhere, dust everywhere, scaffolding everywhere. But you could kind of get a sense, almost a deja vu sort of sense about, hey, I think this is where all the nickel slots were back in the Sahara. <laughs> and I know, yeah, this is where this is. It's, it was just really interesting to me to see what they were doing. And I also got to talk with Rob about his vision for it. And I was really impressed with it. One of the things that I'll lead off with is probably one of the less important things, but it's been one of my kind of bugbears. Like, hey, they're saying they're going to market to locals and that's not a good idea because it's so. So I said that to him because he said, you know, do you have anything kind of, do you have any criticisms or feedback? I said, yeah, what's the deal? Are you dropping the plans to market the locals? And he said, no, but he was able to, and somebody on one of the message boards said, they're going to market to the locals in that area on the strip. And that's exactly what he said. 
Hmm. He said, yeah, there's people living at Panorama and here and there and there, and they don't really have a place to go, and we're going to try to be that place. And it made made sense. And also, he talked about some of the marketing they were going to do, and everybody, of course, was trying to get Asian high rollers into their casinos. So he said he was doing this, and I was not skeptical, but I said, well, that's very difficult, and there's a lot of, you know, how are you going to do that without having a legacy program? He said, well, thanks to the EB-5 financing, they have about 800 people who gave half a million dollars each to take part in this, who number one are big players, and number two have networks of friends who are also big players. And the way he broke it down and said, you know, well, if we can get this percentage of our revenue from them, we'll do fine. And it was very – the number he gave me was a very reasonable number. So they seem to – if this thing fails, it's not going to be because they didn't know what they were doing. You know, yeah. they really know what they're doing. Walked me around the floor showing me where everything was spatially. And it's interesting because one – the end – one end of the property, the casino is going to be pretty much 24-hour. The other end is going to activate, which is the new buzzword in this kind of stuff. Oh, Areas get activated. is going to activate when the uh, restaurant comes up. Mm-hmm. When the restaurant comes up. And it's very interesting how, how that's going to happen. So it's sort of that area gets hopping around at night. And they have pretty much all the stuff you can do in Cosmopolitan with the food and beverage and the nightclub and the casino. I know no jokes about how the casino isn't done so much. Kind of all that is within about, I'd say a 50 foot radius. Mm-hmm. So people just can kind of go there and go from one to the other to the other. So I think they're going to get a lot more. They think they're going to get a lot more of the, um, nightclub crowd maybe doing more of the gambling there because they have it it's it's very it's in it's right there and it's available for them they're going to be doing stuff there that'll get them there i was just really impressed with the approach they took Uh. they seem to construction is really cranking along Mm -hmm. and um next i want to get a tour of the tower because it looks like they're moving along with that too i didn't get into the tower so yeah yeah so um a couple things Mm -hmm. um i will be fascinated if they do get those club people to gamble, um, that will be if they can sort of just break that mold and sort of disprove the myth or the common understanding that these people are separate from the gambling people. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be fascinating. I applaud them for trying. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm. They, they have done. I'm sure real honest to goodness market market research where I'm sticking my finger in the wind. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I'll, I still. I'm a little skeptical about that, but we'll see. I would. Lo- I'll, I'm glad that someone's doing the experiment, and we're going to find out. Um, the thing about uh, you mentioned uh, they're not going to fail for lack of sort of a. I'm paraphrasing you, but like good plan <laughs> or smart people or whatever. I, you know, I would agree. I think I'm not super convinced that like Nazarian knows what he's doing, but he's done what a smart CEO should do, which is hire great people that do know what they're doing to work with him. Right? That's a, <laughs> a great strategy. I still feel like their location is this just insurmountable problem. Uh, I I remain, I think, at the same level of skepticism about how the hell they're going to get people to go past that hulking shell of disgusting Fontainebleau, which is already in a bad neighborhood, to go down there, the kind of people that they want. I I just don't see it. I, yeah, a, a VT reader put it this way. He said, I don't see how they're going to get 
5,000 people a night to get in a cab and say, take me to the SLS. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, at the beginning, they'll be the new place. And so they'll <laughs> benefit from that. Um, and then they'll have an opportunity to try and wow people. And, you know, if, if hopefully they're going to be well set up to do it. I just I feel like that's such a high burden that yeah. it doesn't reflect poorly on them as operators necessarily. I mean, of course, they could screw it up mm-hmm. and, and ruin their chances. But let's say that they were the best operators on the planet. It's still such a huge problem. Yeah. I look at it as this way. So if they can get that Asian high-end gambling in there. And maybe that keeps them afloat for a year or two. And I have no idea what their – how long or short of a run, runway they have or how soon this thing has to start churning right. out megabucks. Right. So if they can ha- so if they can kind of break even there with that underwriting it, it gives it time for other stuff to start to come online at that end of the strip. And I think it could it could have a chance. Also, one of the things that I suggested was making that the gateway to downtown because I I just told them free consulting here. I said it seems like what your what your the customer you're gonna you tell me you want to go for, to my mind is increasingly going to downtown Las Vegas, and you can play off of that by making yourself sort of the gateway by running a shuttle bus from where you are to downtown. That way, people who take the monorail go through your property and hopefully you get a crack at them to go to one of your restaurants or, or gamble with you for a little while and then go to downtown or come back from downtown. Rob seemed, you know, didn't say it was a terrible idea. So, so you never know, they might. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I look at downtown Grant, right? We've talked about Cosmopolitan as a proxy for SLS's success in the past. And I think another yeah. cautionary tale is what's happening at downtown Grant. And what I hear from people all the time is that the casino is very dead. And it's that I, I would think that a big reason for that is it's it's hard to get people to walk from Fremont Street to downtown Grand, even though it's a half a block away. It's this huge. It might as well be a, a thousand miles, based on the way people see these things, right? They're just they're in their little zone. It's very hard to entice them to cross over that chasm to come and try some other place. I just feel like it getting people to change that behavior is so difficult. Um, and so I I really think they have the work cut out for them, even with the most world's most creative marketing programs. Um, and it, even if it's a great product, I think they're really I, – I, I am remain highly skeptical that they can overcome their location problem. Yeah, I want to jump in on this too, uh, also related to the downtown Grand. When we did the tour, they touted to us, the three of us, with a great degree of glee how they had – Asian marketing offices set up in Hong Kong and various other places uh, near Macau mm-hmm. <laughs> to bring players to stay at this specific room type and stay at this spe- eat at the specific restaurant and gamble in the, their little baccarat corner as well. And it hasn't really <laughs> the baccarat nook. <laughs> yeah, the baccarat nook. It hasn't exactly uh, pan out the way. It doesn't seem they to expect. It doesn't seem so, to have had yet. You know. Yeah. So eight hundred people. We got eight hundred people on our Rolodex. Eight hundred people are going to support an entire casino. I don't know, man. Well, the interesting thing about that is, if you look at the Venetian, that's kind of what's working for them. Where they've, I, I was in a presentation with some of their gaming guys, and I forget the number they gave me, but I think the top one percent of their client base generates something like ninety percent. 
maybe it was set. No, it was ninety, an exorbitant amount of the revenues of the casino. Of the which casino is, revenues, is, though, right? I mean, they're now 50-50, yeah. like casino other stuff too, yeah. right? So that's but most of the. But which is why I saw today somebody posted that now all blackjack below one hundred dollars is six five, because hmm. they you know, not like they don't want the. They don't want the play, but they don't really need it because they they've got right. all this. You know, they need to cater to this group of very high-end people, and that's where they're co- going to concentrate their resources. You know, I think so. I think there's a model for that, and if you look at a lot of the places that are doing well, they're really getting bailed out by that. I think the retail gaming for all of Las Vegas isn't. I don't know if it's ever going to come back to what it was. Well, let's just tell Nazarian he has to build casinos in Macau and Singapore, and then he'll be <laughs> totally dialed in. No problem. Okay, now listen. Yeah. I'm going to jump in on this too. Is yeah. uh, If that's the case, then why build such a massive place and spend all that money and capital and also all the expensive operations if you're dealing – if you really it's all about a five-table Baccarat room? You know, does that mean that the Lucky Dragon, the Bill Widener's project next to the the condo up there is uh, is really the right thing? Because they're not putting that much money into it. I think that the issue is that the whole model shifted since the recession. So originally it was build the big box, get in a lot of people, try, you know, get them on having a high room rate. They're going to also gamble a lot. They're going to also spend a lot in food and beverage. Since the recession for domestic customers, that's really changed. We're now like, oh, well, we'll get them in. They're not going to pay as much for the room. They're not going to spend as much on food and beverage, and they're certainly not gambling as much. And lo and behold, around the same time, wow, there's this expanding wealth in China, and it just so happens that these folks like to gamble a lot, and we can bring them out there, out here to kind of substitute for what had been the bigger mass and premium mass market, which I think domestically in the U.S. has has gone away. So I think part of it's that the way casinos, the way they're getting the money has changed in the last five years since most of these places were developed. Yeah, but uh, what if this one of these dudes rolls yeah. in from China and they roll into an SLS that's as empty as the Sahara was in the two months before it closed, yeah. right, they're going to be like, this place sucks. Take me to win. Right. They might. They might. That's a risk. And I, I guess they have to pull it all together. And they've done – I know that, that they've done a lot of work with trying to figure out stuff like how to keep the place looking busy. Right. To put it – I don't. that's not the right way to phrase it. No, but, but I mean – How to keep the excitement level up in there. Well, I think you know you look at um, – to you see this a lot in theatrical stage design, right? Mm-hmm. You'll see places where they can take a large venue and make it seem like a smaller venue based on the yeah. act, right? And so they can, because nobody wants to be in a large empty room, right? They want to f- make it feel appropriate for the size of whatever event you're having. And if you could somehow do that with a casino floor, I mean, I would actually say that's innovative and smart, even if it is only masking a more serious problem. Well, I think they're they're having steps to do that. So the a lot of the space is is. Framed around what what well not what used to be the pool but the pool, yeah. So a lot of the areas so that's going to be active during the day and they've got a lot of the restaurants there. They've got the beer garden thing up by the strip and that's going to have entertainment going on in the day and that's going to spill out. Also, like everyone else, they have a lot of these indoor outdoor components, which is interesting. So it seems like they're taking a lot of the ideas that are working now and applying them as opposed to just doing okay, we've got the big box. They're also, I think, to an extent, they're really betting on that area turning around. And is that a good bet, though? I mean, that seems like a long shot bet. You know, it's there were 
having had a talk to, with someone a while not so long ago who was privy to what was going on in before the Mirage opened, most of the casino executives in Las Vegas said the Mirage was going to fail. Right, said, sure. It'll never work. It'll never work. And they were wrong. So yes. it's very I and it's very dangerous to bet against it. You know, on the other hand, in the middle in the mid 2000s, they were saying, "Sure, we can add another 40,000 hotel rooms that are $300 a night rack yeah, rates and, and they that's going to work." Too. <laughs> they were wrong. So, yeah, I mean, you never you never know. And the thing about going around with Rob Osland is he certainly has learned so much from Steve Wynn because it's the same thing where when when Steve walks around a property and says, this is where this is going to be and this is where that's going to be, you can really see it and you can say, yeah, this makes sense. Rob has that, Rob has that same mannerism mm-hmm. where he's talking about it and saying this is – and talking about the, the design process and how they, how they laid it out and it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I, I guess – I don't know. We'll see. People say the Cosmopolitan made a lot of sense and it – has done okay, but it's if they didn't well. if they didn't have a billion multi billion dollar German bank behind them, they would have been bankrupt years ago. Yeah, and they've done some things very well. Of course, they uh, have. which yeah. is food and beverage, which unfortunately they don't own. <laughs> so some things have have gone very well, and I think what you know what SLS is doing is trying to replicate what worked, and obviously not replicate what didn't work. Yeah, but they're definitely paying a lot more attention to the gaming aspect, and I know they've hired a lot of people from around town. So I think that'll. I think it, it's something. It's definitely something to watch. Yeah, for sure. I can't wait to see how it goes. Uh, Dave, it, I, Dave, I have one last question about uh, the SLS. Uh, did, sure. Did Rob ask about us? <laughs> No, he didn't. No. But he did want he did want me to go out and and spread the message. So I'm sure that's what he intended. Proselytizing oh, okay. for uh, well, not proselytizing. <laughs> just you know, it's um. Just curious I, if he had any thoughts about the Vegas gang. You know, anything. <laughs> like that. I'll ask him next time I'm out there. Yeah, if I, if I, I am invited back. But it was re- it was uh, it was just interesting to see it under construction. To hear what they're <laughs> talking about. Why they did it the way they did it. Why they laid out the floor. They the way they laid out the floor. So I want to see as it. I want to see first of all how many change orders there are before we before it opens, and then how it actually comes together. Yeah. Because you know you figure you've got some people. So Rob has a ton of experience in this. He's opened up properties with Steve Wynn. Right. He knows what he's doing. How well can he apply that when you don't have Steve Wynn there to be the person who is who knows every detail and knows everybody everybody's job? You know, how well how well can you translate that? I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. It'll be uh fascinating. Um so definitely looking forward to seeing what they do there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So we've got uh, of course Cromwell, Cromwelling in uh, <laughs> May-ish, and then um, this happening Labor Day, right? Isn't that their projected opening date? Yeah, and they look like they're they're right on target. He told me they're only working five days a week, so they're not in full yeah. total rush mode. So, If the Cromwell if, can be that unfinished and opening in like a month, then I assume that uh, they'll be fine. You know, I drove past it yesterday, and it was looking way more finished than no, even it's it's amazing. It's amazing so, how it turns the corner really fast. It goes from yeah. total disaster to finished in like a week. I mean, three weeks ago, you could look through the building. <laughs> it's crazy. So, I remember that with Encore, too. It was like, how are they ever going to open this place? And it was, they just, it all comes together. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Um, I, we have two sort of financial related stories here. Um, since we're talking about uh, properties and openings, maybe we'll start with uh, this one first, which is Caesars and selling stuff to themselves. Um, 
we saw, of course, Caesars is uh, has this enormously large uh, debt load that they uh, came upon as they went private at the height of the uh, t- most terrible time ever. Um, and so they've been sort of struggling with this for years, since 2008, and they've been trying to figure out uh, sort of how to keep the company afloat without going bankrupt. And they've come up with all kinds of crazy financial engineering to make this happen. One of one technique is to create this uh, subsidiary. It's not wholly owned, but it's majority owned by Caesars that they sell stuff to. So they're basically like selling stuff to themselves in a way. Uh, but this this other company, you know, this is very Enron-y to me, but... Um, this other company, you know, its balance sheet looks better, so they can sell it assets and they can borrow against it, and it uh, it is it's sort of like they take the good assets and they spin them off to this other company, which then they get other people to buy into, and then eventually they'll probably get repurchased by the parent company. It's a bunch of financial mumbo jumbo, um, but uh, they're doing it again, or they did it again um, in this in this case, selling off. Um, they'd already sold, I think, Planet Hollywood and uh, the interactive business and one of the Caesar's Palace Towers to this company and maybe some other crap. <laughs> and now it's like they added the Quad and Bally's and the Cromwell to this. And I think they netted, what, $2.2 billion or $2.1 billion or something to help pay down their debt, which is still astronomically high even after they do this crazy stuff. Um, so anyway, crazy. this crazy story continues. Chuck, you like to tell the story of how they charged themselves for the – Rental tables at at uh, at our event, yes, uh, which is a great story. I think is a very illustrative of sort of how all this stuff works. Yep, um, where you know they were charging themselves this exorbitant rental rate for for tables at the event, which is like they're renting it to them. Corporate and the casino were having this game where they're playing, you know, back and forth with their balance sheet. It's it's kind of hilarious. Yep. Anyway, um, I guess there's two interesting pieces to this. One. Is will Caesars be able to negotiate these waters without going bankrupt? Um, this is a little bit of pressure relief, but not a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. Um, will they be able to make it through without having to go uh, file Chapter Eleven or Chapter Seven or whatever? Um, and then, second, as part of this, they announced a pretty significant renovation of the Quad. Right, so the Quad has had its public spaces redone. Quad was formerly Imperial Palace. It's had its public spaces redone as part of the addition of the Link Project, which is now at least partially open next door. And um, But the rooms and a lot of the other, I assume, back of house and other facilities weren't touched as part of that. So now they're talking about spending $223 million to do a room renovation project for the quad. And given the amount of money we're talking about, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty significant one. Um, you know, maybe, maybe a la Cromwell where they're really going down to the, going mm-hmm. down to the studs and, and rebuilding, which if anyone, anyone that has stayed in the Imperial palace, uh, anytime recently knows, you know, mm-hmm. the, the rooms were worn. They were not, uh, they were not in good shape. So, you know, I think that's in some in some ways welcomed by a lot of folks because it's uh, a room product that was really old. On the other hand, with both uh, Bills and now Quad redoing their rooms, we're seeing a real loss of value rooms, uh, mm-hmm. cheap rooms on the Strip, where those were two big pools of um, of some inexpensive room products in a really good location. So that's going to be going away, it sounds like. And I guess you'll be left with, what, Harrah's and... Casinos Royale. Casino Royale is like twelve rooms, 
uh, to uh, to fulfill your your cheap room needs. Flamingo. Uh, yeah, flamingo. Of course, I know, I always forget about the flamingo. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, I don't know. It's interesting. I, do you guys think that Caesars is going to be able to figure this out? I mean, uh, it seems like they're as I think Howard Stetz said, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, most of the people I talk to in the industry don't think they'll be able to get through this without some kind of restructuring. But going back to a post I saw on Vegas Tripping, when Las Vegas sand stock was at, what, $1.40 yep. a share? Yep. And somebody – I remember I had a phone conversation. Somebody said to me, well, now's the time to buy. And, you know, if you put all your money in that, it's going to go back up. I'm like, yeah, what if they go bankrupt? Then you lose everything. So a lot of people then obviously thought that that stock was only worth a dollar and 40 cents yep. and were betting against him. And it turned around that, well, he was right. So I think – and this is a, a piece that I wanted to write for Seven but just haven't found the time over the last two weeks – when they talk about problem gambling, they talk about something called magic, magical thinking, mm-hmm, right? Where the problem gamblers say, "Well, I have to win because I need the money," and blah, 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 and sure, I can do this, and that's a sign of real sickness. <laughs> and you can see that happening with Caesars to an extent, where it's like, "Well, yeah, we're just going to sell it to this thing and sell it to that thing, and then this this right. expansion opportunity, and everything's going to turn out right." And you know, you would say, well, they shouldn't do that. That's just insane. They need to be realistic. But then you look at Sheldon, and he had the same. He had, you Ah. could argue that was magical thinking in March 2009, and he was right. I'd say two things. One, I would love to go into Gary Loveman's office with a when the fun stops for sure and just hand it <laughs> just hand it to him and drop the mic and walk out. <laughs> um, but second, and I don't and I don't know um, it, I, I don't know if this is true of Loveman or not. But back when Las Vegas Sands was plummeting towards the ground, Sheldon Adelson was there investing a lot of money in the company. He's like, I'm buying mm-hmm. stock. I'm in. Yeah. Is Loveman yeah. buying Caesar's stock? I mean, I, I, it's not a publicly traded company anymore, but like is I, it would be very interesting to see where the executives of the company are putting their money. Are they trying to like, I'm sure that they have some levers they can pull to not be as personally financially tied to it. It would be very telling if we had that information to be able to determine if those executives are bullish on its prospects or bearish. Yeah, I don't know, but Sheldon came – I don't know how close he came to losing that company, but he – that was definitely within the realm of possibility that he would be out and um, he instead he put his own money into it, reasserted control because he believed in it and right. he knew that the fundamentals were there. Yeah, I don't know if, if they've got that kind of leadership there. You don't have the same central authority figure like a, a Sheldon Adelson, like a Steve Wynn who's going to do that. So I don't know. That's yeah. that's. Le- that's Loveman is more of a a Murren than a Win or an Adelson, right? I mean, he's more of a. I mean, he's more of a wonk than Murren is a banker. Yeah, right? but he was brought still, in to to run this big company with a big database, right? And that's what he's doing. I think uh, that the the fear with LVS was was a little bit more kind of investor driven than than the facts. Uh, warranted mm-hmm. right. because they had, you know, one of six Macau concessions. They're the first two big joints there and they've been printing money, you know, since that time and, and maybe overextended a little bit while building uh, the stuff on the other side of the street from the Venetian on Kotai. But, you know, Sheldon was smart. You know, other entrepreneurs do the same thing. Elon Musk did the same when the chips were down with Tesla. He put all of his last money 
into the company that and for SpaceX and he was right you know he committed into it he's also a smart investor too he knows when he's going to make his money back and the valuation is pretty low the same thing MGM at the same time even though they were adrift at sea the valuation of the company was and probably still is a little lower than what it should be so the smart investor who has a emotional real stake in the company meaning he owns it of course, he's going to put his own money back into the business. So, but the difference is with Caesars and what I think their end game might be. Just guessing, you know. In addition to screwing over a truckload of bondholders, which is what they're going to do, is the the portion of the company that's public. What is it? The uh, what's the Paulson percentage? It's like fifteen, ten percent of the company. Uh, they're going to try and raise, get that stock to go up, and then it creates a value in the company then they might start issuing more on that to help pay for this stuff. So if they throw the sandbags off of the stock market ship, then they'll say, oh, we're not reporting losses, now we're reporting income, all these other ones have higher percentages. Then investors, top-line investors, the ones who don't read between the lines, are going to say, oh, look, their profit ratio is up and blah, 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 blah. We're going to start buying this stock. It's It's undervalued. It's only 22 bucks a share. The value of the company itself is going to raise. Well, they still have another ship sinking, holding all the sandbags. Yeah. So then they'll have more money to deal with that shit when, you know, when when the boat starts to rise, they'll go and use that money to buy a bail or purchase some of the other assets back. I, you know, I, I mentioned Enron as a joke, but I, for those that are like don't know the real story of Enron and how and how it actually worked, the yeah. how their financial mumbo jumbo worked. It, there's a couple of books on it. Um, Smartest Guys in the Room is the book slash documentary that I would definitely recommend because it is just fascinating. And the book goes into way more detail than the movie about how about how they they did a lot of the similar sounding stuff. I know it's not exactly the same for those people that work in these markets, but shifting this stuff around, creating these sort of fake enterprises to to make one balance sheet look better for some period of time and then moving these things around. It is a game that you can play for a while, but eventually the, the music stops, right? And and what we don't know is if they're all going to have seats or not. And I I don't know. I'd be, I, I think it's pretty precarious. I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually a lot worse than we think. I'm going to, just to wheel back to something, I looked up Insider Trades on Caesars. Mm-hmm. And... Last year, June of last year, generally the uh, the director levels were purchasing shares. Starting in mm, December of last year, primarily in January, which I guess is when the window is, it's all selling. People are selling shares. Hmm. Seems like a bad sign. I mean, of course, there's a lot of other sort of ins and outs, people that are doing financial planning and taxes and all kinds of other stuff. So we might need a longer window to really get a good sense of it, but that doesn't seem like a good trend. All of the sales are dated, most of them. I'm looking at this. There's one in December and there's probably another dozen that are all dated the 2nd of January. So this is New Year Mm -hmm. sale. The first thing this year, I'm selling these shares. It wasn't like they sold them at a loss to get a tax break. Right. They did some. There's some <laughs> other thing happening. Doesn't seem like a vote of confidence. I don't know. I would. I think that's uh, an interesting angle, and if that does represent a true, um, a, a, a true picture of sort of how the insiders feel about the company, I'd say that's mm-hmm. worrisome. 
You know, it's not selling or buying doesn't necessarily mean that they're betting for or against the company because Matt Maddox just disposed a ton of right. win shares in the last month. But that's because the stock has been exploding. Right. He's so taking he, his profit. Exactly. He and uh, uh, Linda Chen both dumped a ton of stock, made a lot of money on it. Right. I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. I think it will be I, – I wouldn't – be surprised at all to see, as you said, Dave, some sort of restructuring be forced at some point. Um, it seems like they can only play these games for so long, and unless the economy substantially improves and they're somehow covered through that, it seems like they are going to eventually run out of rope. Yeah, Loveman sold 7,000 shares January 2nd. Sorry. Very interesting. I don't know. I think in terms of the quad renovation, though, I mean, I know, Chuck, you've actually written lovingly about your early <laughs> days visiting the Strip and staying at the Imperial Palace. I mean, are you oh, yeah. are you excited about this or sad about this or what? Well, you know, as you mentioned before, the disappearance of value rooms is always a sad thing, uh, you know, but so goes the market. That's just the way it happens. But I love the days, excuse me, of, of uh, staying at the Imperial Palace for – you know, under 20 bucks a night with no resort fee. And, you know, I used to bring a cooler full of sandwiches that would last for a day or two, <laughs> you know, and just live completely on the cheap because I really needed to gamble. So uh, it's a sad thing. But the rooms themselves, they, they direly need it. You know, the furniture in there was, was a mismatched set of, it seemed like garage sale wares. Uh, <laughs> that, will, that will do some podunk hotel pretty good. Pretty well in the long run. Yeah. They kept it kind of clean, but you know, there's some structural problems with those towers. Seems like when they built them, and I'm thinking about. Uh, it reminds me. I think Dave, it was in the uh, the Paul Steelman interview that you did, where they poked through a wall and they found out that <laughs> the the plans mat- didn't match what was exactly there, and they were they had to build a step for like six inches or so <laughs> because the. The add-ons, it's, it's the same thing with the Imperial Palace. The, the, uh, a lot of the hallways kind of have these weird adjustments in them. And, you know, it's just a dirty old, funky old place. So any renovation will be a good deal. And hopefully they'll scrape that stucco off the outside. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was hard not to look at the quad public spaces renovations and think that they really half-assed the exterior tower stuff because it just looks so cheesy compared yeah. to the, the maybe not a lot of money that was spent on the public spaces, but at least it looked new. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, They'll yeah. probably do the same thing to the tower. They're just going to run some guys up on the outside with scaffolding and drill yeah. in that right. bolt mylar that cover, yeah. whatever right. that <laughs> stuff is. Right. You know, so it's not going to be a a classy job. I can I'm, guess. I'm doing a Kickstarter to buy you one of the love tubs. We're going to send it oh, to your house. <laughs> yeah. I definitely need one because I have a space for it. I'll definitely need it. I'll take it. Yeah. There's not enough bleach in the world, my friend. There's not enough bleach in the world. That's a good concept, though. I The uh, old Imperial Palace slash quad liquidation sale. Yes, yeah. there you go. I don't know. What, what would be like the signature item? When this is a hair, it was the lamps, right? So what would be yeah, the, the signature items? Well, you mentioned it for sure. It's the love tubs. Yeah. And also oh, yeah. the, 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 the uh, door markers. Ah. Because they, they look like a little pagoda. Yeah, so. right, right, right. Um, okay, quad good, quad renovated. Okay. Finsen, yeah. um, Finsen, oh, Finsen. Sounds like some kind of karate, but no. It is part <laughs> of the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Dave, you say in your article in Vegas 7 that 
you may not have heard of FinCEN. Actually, I have heard of FinCEN. So <laughs> where's my, you know, pat on the back or whatever? You get the Boy Scout badge, yes. the FinCEN. So, so you wrote about this, Dave, and I, I, I will ask you to summarize your article in a minute. I think it's interesting. Um, you sounded maybe more of an alarm than I would have guessed. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear your angle on this. What did you write about? Well, uh, FinCEN is the agency within the Treasury Department that collects information from places like casinos. If you have any transaction, whether you're buying in or cashing out for $10,000 or more, that casino has to file what is called a currency transaction report or CTR. If they don't file the report, they can be fined $100,000. If they make a mistake filing the report, they can be fined $1,500 just for a mistake. So if you imagine how many $10,000 and up transactions are in a casino, you have an idea of what a big deal this is. Yep. FinCEN has a relatively new director. She's been there for about 18 months who was apparently given a mandate to be take the enforcement nature of the bureau much more seriously and and sort of crack down on people. So just, make, we just stop you real quick. Yeah, Any, yeah. Do we know why that is? I mean, we see a lot of financial stuff related to terrorism, right? People yeah. worry about money laundering. Is that part of this or is it different? That's Yeah, that's a lot of it. It's A lot of it's driven by that where they believe that there are number one criminal organizations, number two terrorist organizations that are be fun, being funded through money laundering and they think that we really need to crack down on this and they think that casinos are one place where this could be happening. Mm-hmm. So they want the casinos to do a much better job of getting information. Let me take a step back. When you get a marker in a casino, basically they have one question, which is, can you pay this back? Mm -hmm. They do not ask, where did you get the money to pay this back? Right. They now want them to ask, where did you get the money to pay this back? Which Ah. is where you get in trouble because if you are a wealthy Chinese businessman, you probably do not want to have to explain to somebody who you are doing a favor for by coming to play in their casino where you got your money. Right. So that's the that's kind of the difficulty right there. So it's two it's a culture clash that I think is going to be coming more of a clash um, over the next year. No, that's that's an excellent summary, um, and I definitely can see how that could be a significant problem, especially when you sort of layer on top. And I don't know if they you know sort of guarantee at least theoretically guarantee confidentiality with the data. But when you see how our own government can't keep its most precious secrets safe with something like what happened with Snowden and the NSA, it's like they can't – They even if the government is saying, well, we're, this is going to be remain in our database or whatever, no one's going to know what you tell us, they can't make that guarantee plausibly, credibly. <laughs> yeah, it is difficult and it's – the question then becomes, well, is a casino credit manager in the business of looking for criminals and trying to determine whether it's a criminal laundering money or it's a legitimate business person, you know, or are they just in the business of accepting credit and getting that credit paid? And, um, you know, are they, you know, do we kind of deputize them to do law enforcement functions or do we just let them do their job and then if law enforcement is interested in this person, they subpoena the records and they give them the records of what the transactions were? It's a, it's, it's a f- sort of a philosophical divide, I think, in, uh, 
in Las Vegas. So, yeah, someone that's written a lot about the way that the government has shaped gaming policies with stuff like the Wire Act. I mean, mm-hmm. do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, you know, to the extent that the government is going to be doing a lot more enforcement with this, it, it could do a couple things. It layers on a lot of compliance costs for casinos. So if they have to suddenly double or triple their compliance staff, that means they have to hire a lot more people. That means a lower bottom line. And it also, you know, gives you the question of this is these transactions are very important for Las Vegas economically. If you estimate the total international high roller revenue here is maybe 20 or 30% of the total revenue. Okay, if that if something happens to jeopardize that, that could be catastrophic for Las Vegas. Are people in Washington, D.C. who are tasked with safeguarding our national security going to care about that so much? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. And I guess, I mean, I don't know how this would play out, but, you know, Senator Reid has cultivated a very cozy relationship with the president. And I Mm -hmm. can't imagine that the president would like to go on the record as trying to, like, weaken a fight against terrorism. But I wonder if there was some – if it did become a problem, if there was some opportunity for Harry Reid to try and fix it behind the scenes if it really did start to become an issue. And it doesn't even have to, be, have to be terrorism. It can be drug trafficking. Right. So that, you know, that also, well, hey, you knew this was happening. Why didn't you do something? And it's really a problem because crime generates a lot of money and that money has to go somewhere. And the question is, where is it going to go? And how diligent are we going to be trying to catch criminals? EB-5. That's where it goes. <laughs> right. um, it's fascinating. It really is interesting. Uh, I wonder um, – It's this is one of those things that it would might be very difficult to – sort of extrapolate its impact after the fact. I mean, I think you were very smart to pick up on it as a possibility. It'll be, it sounds like it might be difficult to track though. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, people uh, through the rumor mill or whatever, but it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if there's any data in the future that would give us a real grasp on how this might be impacting the situation. They do have some enforcement actions on their website and, and a lot of these are older. I don't know how, how recently they were updated, but you can see that – and it's amazing the casinos they've gone after around the country. A lot of them are smaller tribal casinos hmm. that you might not have ever even heard of, and yet they believe that these were centers for money laundering and they, when they went after them. And I think in one case, there was a multi-million dollar enforcement action there. House of is, Cards Season 2. Major yeah. plot point. I don't want to spoil yeah. the show for anybody, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Dave, that was very cool of you to write that story. I mean, I think it's very interesting stuff. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm glad that you did. Thank you. Thank you. FinCEN, everyone. F-I-N-C-E-N. The, Go well, look the it most, up. The, the, the best thing about writing the piece for me was I kind of – I really got into the acronyms. Yeah. So you've got the BSA, the Bank Security Act, CTR, Currency Transaction Report, AML, anti, anti-money laundering. So it's kind of – Kind of fun. That's one of the things I like best about writing. It's like becoming an actor and immersing yourself in a role yeah. and just picking up on the language that these different groups use. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. I think that's it for today. We're going to let you guys go. We're going to say sayonara. We're going to go out and search for our hood ornaments, make sure they haven't been stolen. <laughs> um, but, but there's more. Um, as always, we are going to proceed with our SureBets segment. SureBets are our opportunity to share with you, the audience, something we think you might like. It could be casino-related, doesn't have to be, um, just something we've come across that we think we want to share 
Uh, I actually, I've, I've actually got something ready to go this week. Um, but uh, I'll start with either of you guys if you guys have anything. Dave, do you have anything for us? I've actually got something too. Great. It is the new Cosmos. Oh yeah, great, series. great one. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is the host, taking over for the late Carl Sagan. And as somebody who watched and was very inspired by the original Cosmos when it aired, I think in 1980, um, was looking forward to this, and it really delivered. It was just incredible. Uh, Tyson is an incredible presenter and host. Just great job. He has yeah. that. Also has that deep resonant voice, like mm-hmm, right. Carl Sagan, so you can't go wrong billions there. Billions and, and billions. Yes, it was. It was. It's just a real treat. So it's great to have a show that's more current that I can show my kids and and they can like. So I hope it gets a lot of people interested in science because it's a pretty cool show. I agree. Um, I've enjoyed uh, what I've seen so far. Uh, I'm glad that they're doing it. He does a great job. I'm a fan of his. So oh yeah, I think it's yeah. good stuff for sure. It's just great to see somebody get that kind of opportunity and totally deliver. Yep. It's awesome. It's just such a great feeling. Good stuff. Charles, you got something for us? Yeah, mine is also about TV, but it's a little bit more abstract. And it's got three little parts. Uh, Number one would be the Apple television. And I mean the Apple TV, that little device you put on your whatever dresser and TV area. Yeah, that little hockey puck and you hook it up to your TV. Uh, it's kind of changed the way I watch television now. I, uh, when I, when it's time to chill, you know, you can plop on a movie or, uh, watch some YouTube or whatever other things like that, different ways or any of the many channels on there. Uh, so that device is, is pretty great. There's no, there's no stuff. There's no subscriptions. Well, I guess a couple if you want them and of the subscriptions, uh, Netflix, is pretty great, and they, as Hunter mentioned before, have a, have a new show on season two of House of Cards, and I think I gave this a sure bet twice before, and I'm going to give season two another sure bet. It's a pretty great story. I won't go into the details. And now, as the last bit, you know, the thing about the Apple TV that's so great is that it hooks up to your home network and your computers and devices and everything, so you can watch whatever media you have or listen to it on any TV in your house. And that has caused me to break out these cases of DVDs that I've had sitting in the closet that I'm too lazy to pull out and watch. And I've used this software called Handbrake mm, yep. to copy the DVDs to a massive terabyte, couple terabyte hard drive. So now I can watch this stuff on demand from anywhere, any TV in the house wirelessly or put it on my devices. And, uh, and I don't have to have this clutter sitting around the house. It's kind of great. Yep. So, you know, great things for the future. This device is going to get better and better and better and better. I, I agree. So it may not surprise you. I, actually, I have three Apple TVs. I have one in each room where there's a television. I'm a big fan as well. I use it uh, quite a bit. Um, and, uh, yes, Handbrake is great. It's uh, a little bit fiddly for people that don't aren't maybe a little bit technical because it's got a lot of settings and stuff, but um, it works fantastically well. Yeah. Definitely a fan. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for people to, uh, you know, to uh, steal stuff, steal stuff. I mean, if you already have this stuff, it's like, you know, making a copy of a CD or a tape. So So I had like hundreds of DVDs and they were collecting dust and I did what you just did. 
suggested yeah. and, and I ripped them all. I actually still have the DVDs in storage someplace, but um, yeah. it's just, it, it's, it was very convenient to be able to watch them again and not have them locked into in a dusty, exactly. dusty cage. The whole, the yeah, whole idea I, of walking out to go find a DVD in a box somewhere and then pull it out and put it into the machine, forget it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Me no do. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Awesome. Um, so let's see, uh, folks, I'm sure many folks out there are familiar with the website called Reddit, which is very popular. Um, they have been done a longstanding thing. One of the most popular things they do on their site is an interview series called ask me anything where they get, um, people not necessarily famous, but often famous people saying, uh, that are willing to answer crowdsourced questions. And the end result is often some really interesting interviews with people on a whole variety of subjects, but Reddit can be a little bit intimidating format-wise for some people to read. It, it, it's a threaded discussion format, which is, for popular interviews, is hundreds and maybe thousands of comments that are nested together. And some, some folks have trouble following it. And there's an interesting new site called interviewly.com, which takes the Reddit AMA interviews and condenses them into the actual questions and answers from the people that were interviewed. So it strips out all the other discussion that goes with the normal AMA and gives you the actual questions and answers that the subject uh, actually responded to. And um, they've archived all the stuff that's on Reddit for, I don't know how far back they went, but it's all got a ton of stuff on there. And um, it's really fascinating. You can read everything from an interview with the President of the United States to um, a porn star to a banker that was involved in the 2008 crash. I mean, and the the fun part about these interviews is they're, I mean, it varies, obviously, but they're typically relatively candid. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. If you like interviews, if you like hearing about uh, the way people do jobs that you don't know anything about and the way they live their lives and make the stuff that they make and whatnot, I would totally recommend it. Um, there's a lot of interesting content on there. So I'll link that up in the show notes. People can check it out if they are so inclined. Interviewlee.com. Um, all right. Let's see. Folks, people of Earth, um, go rate the show on iTunes. It is uh, the best way for you to help spread the word about the Vegas Gang, and we deeply appreciate it. If you want to leave a comment about today's show, um, you can go to VegasGangPodcast.com and comment on the post that will go up with this episode. And you can also reach us on Twitter. We are at Vegas Gang. Uh, that is it for today. Thank you guys all for being here. Let me go around the table one more time so you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people find you? DGSchwartz.com. Most excellent. And uh, Chuck, where can people find you? People can find me at VegasTripping.com. You can find me at VegasMate.com. Thank you guys. Have a great weekend. 